the news media and everything, they were complaining about the fact that, uh, you know, this is, this is a, um, and, and some politicians, in fact, too, were, were coming up for that and saying that this is the woman's right to choose and everything else, and they kind of went on and on and on about that. And what they failed to recognize is that the majority of those people who were marching were women who were fighting for a woman's right to choose, to choose life. And I think that's significant. Um, I think that that's a real significant thing that I think that oftentimes gets overlooked, that people are um, fighting. Well, I, I know that we've said choose life, and that's how they've kind of framed that and everything else. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's significant to me that we're fighting for the, ultimately, for the unborn. And, um, and for those who can't, that was the conversation that we were talking about this morning when we were talking about um, we were talking about underdogs, and I just said, "That's why I like the Vikings, Ralph. That's why I like the Vikings." But it's the same reason why I rooted for the Packers last week, and that I will be rooting for the Chiefs next week, because San Francisco just kind of has just been—they're not the underdog this year, I think. Um, but anyway, I digress. Uh, one of the things that I said last week is that we, well, we started last week this series that is out of the book of Daniel, and I hope that this is something that we can be encouraged by. I would encourage you to look at um, the book of Daniel, maybe read through the book of Daniel. Sometimes I think it's a book that we can... Um, Maybe seems confusing at times. I, I'm not quite so sure that it, it always is, but I, I hope that, um, did, I do, did I do a thing for this? Here I thought I had that done, and I guess I, maybe I didn't. So I guess we'll have to look at it. You're going to have to use your Bibles today. I'm so sorry. Um, but Daniel chapter 1 is what we're going to be looking at, and uh, there is some significant uh, passages or some things that we need to, to be able to read in that. And um, I'm sorry, I guess I was, for some reason, um, I was thinking that I did that. Um, but the title of this series is, is uh, um, Dare to be Different. If you look back, that, see that nice little, little thing down here in the corner of your, of your outline kind of thing? It says, Dare to be Different, Daniel. And I, you got that from last week? Good job, good job. But, but I mean, I, I don't mean to, to spell out the obvious, but you notice that there's a little yellow man amongst all the blue? He's standing out. And so that's really the idea behind this series. I, I think that when you look at Daniel, there's some significant things that you see in the message of that of people who... Who are able to and who who's, who are able to stand out in the midst of people who are totally oppo opposite of them or opposing to them, and that's why we bring up things like uh, the the uh, the right to to life, the the this march that went on. I think that that's such a significant thing because you have people who are standing up in the midst of a culture who is constantly pushing against that agenda and saying that people do not have rights. And in fact, you've got this guy, this Northam guy, who is uh, in Virginia, who is, 
who is bringing out, and you've probably seen all the things, but it just, when I hear it, I just, it, it just boils my blood for him to come out and talk about having a baby now. That's where we're at in this conversation. Make no mistake about it, since 1973 to now, we have progressed the argument, and we've come to this point in this time, in this generation, where we're actually contemplating whether or not to kill a child after it's born. And that's the thing that Governor Northam was bringing out, that if the parent or the mother didn't want that, that we could actually do away with that. And I think that there are people, that's why I, I think this has to do with this and the fact that we are talking about people who stand up in the midst of their culture and they say, there are some things that, that we're going to stand to choose God, we're going to choose life, we're going to choose the things that God wants of us. And so we, we look at Daniel. Daniel is a, an amazing character um, um, in our, our um, amazing example, I think, to us of, of what it means to uh, choose to uh, be different, to stand up against culture. Um, I, I think about it, you know, we just have a lot of excuses, all of us, don't we? We have a lot of excuses for not doing what God wants us to do. And I, I think that the interesting thing is that our culture doesn't really help us with that much. You know, the, the, to me, the, appear, the, the appeal from the world to just be like us, to be drawn by that culture just to do what they tell you to do, and it, it's just so easy to get drawn into that and to be sucked into what culture wants from you. And I, um, I you know... It's, it's interesting, I just ra recently ran into a, an ad that was advertising the iPhone. I, I, I won't get into it, but um, just to let you know, Susan likes the iPhone. I, I can't stand them. I, 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 bought, I got that one, and then I ended up giving it to you because I didn't like the iPhone. But, so I personally don't like it. But the title of the ad was what actually caught my attention. This is something that was out last week, and it just says, here's the, here's the title. Here's the article that it was. Everyone else has one is a perfectly good reason to buy an iPhone. Do you hear that? Uh, that advertisements are not even, advertisers don't even, um, they don't even hide it anymore. Your neighbor has one, you got to get one too. They're just right out there and there it is in your face. Um, but it, it, it caught my attention, that article. Everyone has one. is a perfectly good reason to buy an iPhone. So I, I, I had to read it. It went on to talk about how when searching for a new uh, a cell phone, that a good question to ask is, what are your friends getting? Because that, it said right in the article, because that matters. If everyone has one, you have to have one, right? That's really, I think, that the challenge that we're faced uh, with as, as we begin to look at the book of Daniel. It's the challenge to be like the culture, to be drawn into that and become like every, or what, become what everybody else is. Um, so before we go to Daniel chapter 1, let me just kind of set the stage for why this is happening a little bit here because one of the things that is true about the Old Testament and its teaching was that God honored the obedience of his people. And if they were going to choose to be disobedient, he was going to choose to bring discipline into their life to try to draw them back to himself. 
And in this particular case, in the days just before Daniel, there was a significant season of disobedience. It started with King Hezekiah about 100 years before Daniel is born. We find his story in 2 Kings chapter 20. Hezekiah has been ill. And so he prayed to God that God would uh, give him some extra time to live. And God honors his request, uh, gives him, I think, adds 15 more years onto his life. Instead of, say, it's going to be this December, he said, I'll give you another 15 years. But shortly after that, Hezekiah gets some visitors from the country of Babylon. That name, Babylon, should strike a chord with us as significant. He gets some visitors from Babylon who come to Jerusalem. They want to see the king. And here's what Hezekiah does. Automatically, he invites the visitors in and shows them what he has in all of his storehouses. There's silver. There's gold. There's spices. There's his armory. There's all of his treasure. And it just kind of seems kind of foolish, doesn't it? That, you know, the opposing nation, a warring people... They come to visit and you show them where everything is. (laughs) Seems kind of stupid, to put it bluntly. And so Isaiah the prophet shows up in in, in 2 Kings chapter 20, uh, verse number 17. He says, how foolish. Here's what God says to you. And he says, here it is. Uh, This is found in 2 Kings chapter 20. He says, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your father All that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And some of your own descendants, your own flesh, your own blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palaces of the king of Babylon. Now get this. If you don't hear anything more, basically God through Isaiah is saying, here's what your punishment is going to be for showing all this, this nation of Babylon your storehouses. Here's what... Hezekiah's response is, he says, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Do you hear it? I mean, you talk about a self-centered, arrogant man. I mean, I don't care what happens to my children. I don't care what happens to the people born into my household. I don't care what happens to the nation of Israel after this, just so long as there's peace in my lifetime. I, I could make a little side note. I was just thinking as I was lo- thinking about that. I, it seems like that's kind of what we're playing with with the national debt. As long as we're comfortable today, who cares what happens? But that's that's side the point. But anyway, in in Second Chronicles chapter thirty six, we I think see a development of what has happened, what happened after Hezekiah's foolish disregard for the future of Israel. I won't read that, but suffice it to say that for the next hundred years there are seven kings in Jerusalem, six of them in which the Bible says that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The result is what? The result is that Isaiah's prediction comes true. Here's what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in a number of attacks on Jerusalem, he steals all the treasure from the temple and he burns it. 
he breaks down the walls of Jerusalem and he kills many of the men and women. Disobedience wrought discipline. And there are a series of ex exiles, three actually, where Nebuchadnezzar carries a number of the exiles back to Babylon to become his servants or his slaves. 605 B.C., that, that first wave, included young men of leadership ability, including the three that we'll be introduced to in Daniel chapter 1. We know them as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A few years later, in 597 B.C., the second wave of exiles comes, and then in 587 B.C., the, third, the final wave of exiles come, and Israel is turned into a wasteland with no temple, no grounds, no palace for the king, no remnant of people left to be Israel any longer. And that's what happens. And in the midst of that, we pick up the story about Daniel. Uh, Daniel had to be a young man. Um, I'm guessing in his early teens, um, probably younger than my boys. Um, the book lasts for about 70 years. And Daniel, at the other end of the book, uh, he's at the other end of the book, uh, praying that God would keep his promise that the captivity would last no longer than 70 years. And he says to God in his prayer, it has now been 70 years, which means that he, he's got to be probably in his 80s somewhere looking back. We'll say 83, 84, 85 years old. So Daniel, he was taken from his homeland, he was taken from his family. He's exiled in the king's palace along with three of his friends. They begin the process of turning them into Babylonians. Let me say that again. They begin the process of turning Daniel and his three friends into Babylonians. Taking the, the idea was for them to take the Jewish culture out of them and put Babylonian culture in. And that's where we pick up in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to look at this story. What I'd like you to do is just listen for the lines of resolve. Where do you hear the deep resolution within Daniel and his friends? And then listen for the places where, listen for the places where God is active in his providence because both things I think are critically important. So Daniel chapter 1, you guys ready? Verse number 1, in the third year of the reign of, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God, little g. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, 
qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So you begin to see what's going to happen, right? Uh, these are some young men. These are men who are intelligent, and uh, they, begin, they appear to be healthy men. Uh, they have potential. They're drawn into the king's palace, and they're about to start on this three-year process of having Babylonian culture inflicted upon them. And everything that they've known about the ways of God, everything that they've known about the ways of God, everything that they have known about being Jewish, is, is about to be removed and um, everything that they've seen is, is about to be removed and everything Babylonian is about to be imposed upon them. And, and here's where you begin to hear from the, very, from the very beginning that there's going to be a process whereby God is going to have to, to, to somehow get involved in this because... If not, Daniel and his friends are in big trouble. It's, I think it's the allure of the world, and it, it, it shouldn't surprise us because that's really the nature of every single culture. When you, when you move into it, you know, when you live in it, the challenge is to try not to let it totally become you. I think we face it every day in American culture. It's thrust upon us in, in our media, in our life, in... It's in the way that we do business. It's in, in, it, it challenges us down to the very core of who we are uh, you know, to try to, to decide whether or not we're going to be the people that God calls us to be or if we're going to be just like everybody else. Well, we come a little bit further in the book of Daniel and we take this story to the next step. But what you hear is this. The very first thing, verse number 8 but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, my king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to, guard whom, to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servant in accordance with what you see. And so he agreed to this and he tested them for ten days. Now, I, I just have to tell you that every time that I read that text, I'm just absolutely amazed at the resolve of Daniel. I mean, here is this 12, 13, 14-year-old boy, young man, facing the king, facing these king's uh, officials, living in a culture where he is totally out of place, ripped out of his roots, and he has the courage to stand up and say, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't want to go that way. 
I, I, I don't want to do it that way. I, I don't want to be like that. I'm not going to succumb to that. Let's try something else, shall we? I mean, I just look at that and I'm just like, wow, man. What kind of a person of courage does it take to stand up against a culture when the culture is doing everything it can to turn you into something else? And the fascinating thing is, is that Daniel is not only tested by his culture at this point, but he puts God directly on the spot. Because underlying this assumption is this. God is going to do something here. If we are faithful, God will be faithful. I mean, you try it and you see what happens. Let us give it a go and see what God ends up doing in this situation. That's his perspective. And so you see, uh, verse number 15, it says that at the end of, of, of 10 days, you know what's going to happen. Um, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And, and so the guard took away the choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And so to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief officials presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's servants. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his entire kingdom. You see it, right? You know, verse number eight, Daniel resolved not to succumb. And then you begin to see the activity of God. Verse number nine, uh, uh, God worked. And, and uh, you notice that, right? The resolve came first long before there was evidence that God was going to come to his aid, Daniel had already made up his mind. This is the choice that I am going to make, and I'm going to trust that God is going to come, and God is going to do what God is going to do. The resolve came first. God's activity then came next. But, the, but, but that's the principle, is that you resolve first, not later. You don't wait for God to prove himself. That's kind of the way we are, isn't it, sometimes? But no, we don't, you don't wait for God to prove himself and say, okay, in light of that, I think that I'll do better. <coughs> I think we got that backwards, don't we, in, in our society today, in the church? I mean, how many have done that before? God, prove yourself to me, and then I'll do better. I've done that. Right? But that's not the way it works. God, I will resolve, this is the way I am going to stand out, I'm going to live, and then I wait for God to, to show me how he's going to move. The resolution that you choose to do what God wants you to do, to be the person that you're supposed to be, and then God comes to your aid when God is ready and not until. I, I just think that sometimes we, we somehow believe that because I'm a Christian, all I need... I mean, the bottom line is, is that if you want God in your life, resolve to make Him Lord of your life. If you want Him to move in your life, 
resolved to be obedient and faithful to Him. But see, that runs so against who we are because we, we desire to see God's activity right up front. We want some kind of a guarantee that this is going to turn out right because as American citizens, as American Christians, we've already made up our mind that life is supposed to turn out right. Am I right? I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? You become a disciple of Jesus, and then everything gets better. Everything turns out the way that it's supposed to be. I knew a couple who once, um, who, I, they believed that they were meant to be together. I hate to use such, such drastic, drastic. And I, I, I just, this is a true story. Um, and, but this couple, they felt that they needed to be together, that, that it, was, it was just a God thing. And um, the only problem was is that both of them were married to somebody else at the time. And when I heard this story, it was the spouse that told it, as I was having the funeral for her husband, the one that she finally broke, they both broke away from their, their spouses and married each other, and I had his funeral. Um, he was a guy that was, well, basically for our farmers here, I mean, he went up and he was at the top of the silo and decided to climb down into the silo. And they say it took him, what, less than a second, and he just asphyxiated. And he thought he was being smart by taking a rope and tying it to his waist, but all that does helped him, them get him out of the silo. Um, but he was dead instantly, they said. So as she tells the story, I'm listening. It was like a, it was like a, it was like a, I mean, I didn't know all of this story, but she, she, she says, um, she says, she was telling me the story of how they finally decided that this is what God wanted. So actually they were praying about it. <laughs> you know, God, what should we do? I mean, you know, my husband my wife, you know, they're, they don't know about all this stuff. And then one night, they were, they were both, while they were both snuck away from their spouses to see each other, her, bur- her barn burned down. And his house, and I can't remember quite the details of it, but his house had a fire in it that the fire trucks had to go to his house at the same time. And she says to me, she says, and this is where I just like, I'm listening to the story. And she says, it was at that moment that I knew it was a sign from God that we were meant to be together. You know, I'm just listening. It's like, what did you, you know, you know how that is? But see, they'd already made up their mind. God, if this isn't what you want, then you stop me. Well, I think he tried. (laughs) I do. But they were so convinced that everything was going to turn out the way that they wanted it to turn out. When I was growing up, there was a a lady in our church by the name of Ginny Jackson. Ginny had a daughter, Nancy, who was about eight years old when uh, that I remember. And and actually, Nancy's still alive today, but she's uh, about the same age as my sister at the time. And um, but Nancy, when she was born, she was actually born normal fairly normal and everything uh, with the birth went fine and but shortly after she was born she she started to go into some convulsions or seizures I, I I'm not a medical person so I don't know how, how that would 
what 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 happened quite happened there but but as a result of those convulsions and those seizures or whatever it was that happened to her something happened anyway and the result was that she became mentally impaired um, she was uh, mentally retarded for for all of her life for the rest of her life from that moment on uh, but but such a a devastating thing to happen I think to your child and yet from that time on and I remember as a kid you know just growing up and listening you know in, in the church you know a church that um, every every day um, or every Sunday Ginny began I mean every day Ginny was praying that Nancy would become normal that she would be healed and she had people in the church constantly praying for Nancy um, others she knew constantly praying for Nancy. I, in fact, I, I can just remember Jenny always, you know, talking about the fact that she knew, she knew that God was going to, in fact, heal her daughter. I mean, she never stopped praying for that, and she lived with the belief that God was going to heal her daughter every single day. And yet, Nancy never did get any better. I mean, what a terrible thing! to happen, you know, to think about the joy of this child coming to the world. And, 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 then, and then shortly after that, it's just like something happens like this. And so what's wrong then with the prayers of all those people who prayed for this? Well, I guess my answer to that is not a thing. My answer to that is that life just does not turn out the way that we define life. It doesn't always turn out the way that we think it should. And I think the question isn't whether God is providentially alive and well and acting. The question is only whether or not we have the resolve to live faithfully for as long as God calls us, even if it means being in Babylon for 70 years. Because I think that what we're going to see in this book of Daniel is that this absolute, so, absolutely sovereign God empowers us to be faithful. He doesn't necessarily take us out of the difficulty. He doesn't necessarily move us out of the world in which we have been taken captive. He doesn't necessarily make life easier, but he does empower us to be faithful in that context if you're willing to resolve to do that. And that, to me, is the challenge, isn't it? The challenge is to, be, to re, is to resolve to be the person that God is calling you to be no matter what. There's a text that is tucked away in the New Testament that you may or may not have run across, but you should have. And if you haven't, then I want to just introduce it to you today. I, I, I'm quite positive that most of you have, but it's just a great text. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 13. And it simply says this. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now the problem is that we stop there. But don't do that. Because while he says that nothing ever comes into our path to tempt us that someone, someone, somebody ha that, that, that hasn't been in somebody else's path, you know, we're not unique. The temptations that we face have been faced before. They're not hard temptations. Um, they're hard temptations, they're difficult. But, but, but look at this, this is what the next line says. Um, and God is faithful, he will not let you to be 
tempted beyond what you can bear. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But here's the line. Listen to this. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God will make a way. God is faithful. You resolve to live for God, and he will be faithful. There will be a way out if you choose to take it. And see, that's, that's the thing. The world comes to you and me and, and, and makes claims on you to just be like the rest of us. And while the world says to you, you know, be like us, God says, no, be like my son. While the world comes to you and says, everyone is doing it, God says, you be faithful to me. Uh, the world's going to come along and say, it, it won't hurt you. And God is going to say, maybe not today, but what about tomorrow? And while the world says to you, you know, it's fun, God asks the question, is it worth it? When the world comes to you and says that it doesn't have any consequences, God says that, yes, there could be consequences tomorrow. But can you imagine, though, can you imagine what it would be like if people like you and me resolved to live like Christians in every decision that we make, in everything that we do, can you imagine what kind of an impact that, that would have on our community out here? On all of Viroqua? For us to just say, you know what, I am going to live for Christ. I don't care what the rest of the world does. I am going to be faithful. I am going to be obedient to his word. I wonder what kind of difference that that would make if we decided to do that. I wonder what, what would happen if families in our community, if every father, if every mother, if every young person said, you know what, we are going to be faithful to what God has called us to do. We don't care what anybody else does, and we don't care what everybody else says. What would happen if God's people just resolved to be faithful and then let God do whatever God wanted to do and just trust him? I'm, I'm convinced that we are so focused upon our own comfort level that we forget about obedience. You know, you and I, I think we have an incredible model of one who's already done just that, who has been faithful, who resolved to hang in there to the end, even though it was going to cost him his life. And if Jesus could do that for you and me, can we not turn around and do it for him? That really is the challenge that is always before us, is to resolve to be faithful followers of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the resolve, the, the resolve of Daniel and the example that he set for us. And God, I know, I know for a fact, because I'm one of them, that in our culture as a, as a Christian that we make so many excuses for our behavior. And yet the bottom line is, Regardless of the excuses, disobedience is disobedience. And there are consequences to that in our lives. When we stand up against you and we know what your word says, but we do things our own way anyway. And God, I would just ask that you would forgive me 
for the times that I have done that to you. And God, that all of us together would resolve to do what you want us to do. To be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During our invitation time, we can do this, and then I'll, I got something to share really at the end here, but I'm sorry we're running out of time, but um, I guess I didn't do the offering, so thank you, Mary, for reminding me of that. Um, so let's pray for our offering. Father, thank you for, for what you give to us and um, just an opportunity to give back to you. And again, just uh, as we sing this invitation song, just to be reminded of, of, um, of, 